Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm so glad to be with you today. I don't always get the opportunity to bring amazing people to you, but today is one of those amazing people days. I don't know how much I can say about Dr. Louise Stanger without saying too much. So I'll just say a few things before we get started. Dr. Stanger is an Ivy League award winner. She's a 2019 Interventionist of the Year from London and McLean Hospital, which is an affiliate of Harvard. She's an educated social worker, a popular author, an internationally renowned clinician, an interventionist par none, an interventionist par none, and a speaker and expert on mental health addiction, process disorders, and chronic pain. She's also written a whole bunch of books. Right now, she has a wonderful memoir called Falling Up, a memoir of renewal, along with a whole bunch of other books that I hope Dr. Stanger will mention to you as we go along. So we're going to talk about families. Welcome, Dr. Stanger. Oh, hi, Rob. And just call me Dr. Louise or call me Louise. It's such an honor to be with you. First of all, we know that we love social workers and mm-hmm. you have done so much in the field um, that you are an expert in to change the trajectory of how we look at people and how we even define uh, pro-dependence, for example. So it's an honor to be here with you. Well, back at you, Dr. Louise. Tell me, you, you have this, um, this concept you wrote about, which I, or you've been talking about, which I absolutely kind of relate to, which is can't stand my family, but can't live without them. And I thought, wow, you talk, what a great thing to talk about. Well, you know, people don't call me unless their hearts are hurting and there's some kind of event or crisis that happened with their loved one that prompts them to reach out to an expert like yourself or myself or somebody else. And in doing so, oftentimes families are just so frustrated, they're so angry, they're so upset by the litany of things or injustices which they believe their loved one did while they were experiencing a substance use or a disorder or a process disorder or something while they really were in the midst of a disease. And in like manner, the identified loved one who they're calling to really complain about, worry about, nag about, control about, and don't know what to do and need help about, isn't really too crazy about them because they long stopped being in relationship with one another. A lot of wagging fingers. Yes, Mm -hmm. a lot of pointing. And I think that when you cut across all that, 
everybody's really frightened and scared. And yes, they do love their loved one, but they don't know where their loved one is right now. So love my family, can't do without it. So I just think of my family of origin. And, you know, I learned to spend time with them in a hotel when I was visiting during the holidays because I love them, but I had to leave them. I couldn't get too close. <laughs> and certainly with addicts, people we love who fail themselves and us, we have that experience like, I don't want to go away, but I want to help them, but helping them hurts me. So what area were you thinking of in particular about, you know, the family drives me crazy kind of thing? You know, I was probably thinking about all of the above, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, or consistent with your values. How do we live in relationship with someone? Um, I love that you started talking about your family of origin because I'm pretty famous for family mapping. And since I did write a memoir, I'm allowed to talk publicly about my family. But certainly I grew up with a family beset with mental health, substance abuse, and suicide. And obviously my mother, who had a, who was absolutely beautiful, sort of all a share, um, had a wicked tongue, and especially when she had been drinking. And I learned quickly to escape from that. And yet she probably was so creative, um, a great artist, a great uh, cook, and a wonderful talent that I really always wanted those things about her. But yet I hid in terror when the tongue things came out. And so I learned how to tell her that I loved her and I cared about her, but I could only be, I was only able to talk to her when she hadn't been drinking. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I also grew up with parents with mental illness and there is that pull and tug of, I love you. You're my family member. I want to be around you. I feel warm when you hold me in your embrace, you know, or give me a hug. But I also hate what you're doing. I hate what you've done to me. And I don't know how to feel safe with you. And you know, I know a lot of people, and I hear this, kind of run away. They say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with this family. I'm done with them. I'm going to leave them behind and everything's going to be fine because I'm done with these crazy people. And I kind of think we carry them around in our heads in some way, too. Like, we can't quite get away from them. 100% agree with you, um, Rob. Like, if you and I were in the room right now together, and we can pretend we are, how many people are there really with us? Well, there's you. And there's me. And just being a therapist, I have to say, there's a relationship. But I would argue with you because I just really love doing family maps that sitting on my shoulders and yours or our mother or father or stepfather or stepbrother or whatever you have. But we have generations. And so when I think generationally about my family, there was great resilience, great talent. Um, uh, there were judges, there were lawyers, there were politicians. At the same time, there were people who had manic depression. There are people that had suicide. There are people that had, were workaholism. There are people that were just downright mean, downright mean and selfish. And then there were people that were great blamers. And then there were people that were great fixers. So, well, I don't know, but I have a hell of a lot of people sitting in a room with me right now. And so do I think a lot of our, our listeners, because we come in with our generational kinds of issues and how we then detach from that or grow from that or learn to cherish the strengths and let go of those unconscious patterns we've learned. So how many people are really with you now, Robert? Well, I would say there's a few folks taking up rent-free space in my head that I haven't quite kicked out yet. <laughs> but I, you know, I was thinking as listening to you, because, and, and I just kind of go with my feelings when we're chatting that I remember and still have this feeling of longing 
for the love and connection that I wanted with my mom or that I wanted with various, I mean, the, even though they weren't able to provide it for whatever reason, mental illness or whatever, there's still a feeling in me always of kind of wanting to have that and that communal commune with another in that sense. And I also know that that's a grief issue because you and I are never going to be four again. We're never going to be six again. We're never going to get what we needed back then. And it's a difficult conundrum to want to be drawn to the family still to connect and get your needs met. But even as an adult, you can't really get them met, but you still have this longing to get them met. And yeah, I don't know how you kind of work that one out. Do you have any thoughts about that? That just reminds me of the conversation I just had with the client right before I talked to you. And I have to obviously change everything for to protect HIPAA and confidentiality, but I think relationships with mothers are tough. And I think that the, this lovely person, like many of us are people pleasers, they really want that approval. They're really looking for that. And all of a sudden they realize that when they're 50 or 60 or 30 or 40, they're never going to get that kind of approval. So you're absolutely correct. We have to grieve that which we did not get, but then... I think the trick becomes, or the tool becomes, how do I want to parent myself? How do I want to take care of myself? And how do I want to extend that kind of gratitude that I can give to myself, that kind of self-care that then allows me to be able to be that generosity, that generous person to others, my own children. You know, I, I, I want to go back to our title, which is families can't live with them, with them, can't live without them. And I guess I wanted to ask just very simply, what did you mean by setting that title? Like, what did you have in mind? What did you have in mind when you said can't live without them, can't live with them? Well, I meant that somewhere along the line, we need to individuate and grow. Now, individuate means just for the folks who don't understand. Oh, it means that we need to be autonomous, that we need to how to function on our own. It means that we need to allow people to experience the consequences of their actions, be them good or bad. And it also means we can't live without them. It means that I think, you know, I love your term pro-dependence, and I'm not even going to try to define it, but I'm going to let you define it. Um, so often we looked at caretaking or as enmeshment and as a negative behavior when in truth people care about other people and people want to sort of help someone else out of their pain but there's a, the issue is am i allowing you to grow by not by numbing it by taking responsibility for you or do i care about you enough to let you go and sometimes we need to live without our loved ones so they have opportunities to grow. You know, I'm so grateful that you said that because I, you know, I do a lot of podcasts and a lot of discussions and a lot of live webinars. You know, I, I honestly, as a man, it's a little hard for me to understand. The, so I talked to a woman the other day online and she said something like, you know, my husband has had eight slips on his behavior and he treats me really badly and he doesn't have any respect for what I've been through and he doesn't seem to have any remorse and he just decides he can do whatever he wants to. And I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, I hear these stories, you know, I don't know if it's learned helplessness, like I'm so used to being with someone horrible. It's all I know, but I hear a lot of women in particular put up with circumstances that I would never put up with in the craziest of situations. You know, there's with some folks and maybe it's not just women, but I see it a lot of women. There isn't like a stop button. There isn't a, I love you, but I love you. And, you know, you can't do this or this isn't okay with me. Or it seems to come up more of this question, like, well, how do I learn to live with this? Or, 
Or how do I stop this, which they've tried 12 times to stop it. It didn't stop. What is about attachment and connection, I think, that leads us to not be able to see abuse, not be able to see violations to ourselves, but rather hang in that attachment because that is not healthy. Well, I think it's how we perceive it. Like earlier today, I got another phone call that I thought would be perfect for you. <laughs> Definitely. It was about partner betrayal. And a young woman, I'm going to change it completely, called me with about a three-year-old little child. And the loved ones in the military, and they spend a great deal of time on online porn. And, you know, I think she's tried, like, nagging, controlling, stopping, like, oh, we'll do it together. And, and, and the gentleman's sort of in the midst of, of his need to go do this. And, you know, how's this really working for you? What, is, what are the benefits of this? And what is it that you want to do to stay in this relationship? How important is it to you? Well, you know, part of it is I'm, I have a three-year-old. I don't know anything. But when you go back into the family history, you find out that somehow or other someone said she wasn't worthy enough. She wasn't good enough. Does that mean that she needs to pick her bag, pack her bags and pack immediately? Or does it mean that maybe we need to invite this gentleman to get some help but he, or invite him to become aware about what he's actually doing and how he's harming? Because sooner or later he may, you know, implode because he's leaving at four in the morning and then he's not coming home until two in the morning and stuff. And so I really do see in the beginning, you know, whether it's a partner betrayal or it's a family member they love their and they're frightened frightened and I work with families all the time that there's always been what we call an elephant in the middle of the living room that behavior has been there but somehow or other they haven't been able to really face it until there's this um, tipping point and you as an interventionist I mean that is your moment in a sense to help that person come to terms with what they're living with and hopefully push things forward you know, that's what we try and do. People don't call me unless their hearts are hurting, unless a crisis or something has happened. And, you know, and what we work with them to is do they want to invite their loved one to change? And along the way, 97% of all my work is done with families. And sometimes they cannot tolerate changing. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to work with a little bit a family who was really concerned about, again, I'm changing it, a 23-year-old male who smoked nonstop 24-7 and stayed up in all hours at night. But like in doing a family map, you really see that he had trauma from a, a relationship that went badly and the, and the young woman actually overdosed and died. Mm. At the same time, the family just was too preoccupied with other things. They were too frightened to change. They really thought this person would never talk to them again if they intervened. Right, fear of abandonment. And it was the family that had the fear, and so one has to work through that. So not all, sometimes even when someone calls you and they really want to move someone to change, they themselves can't move to change. So oftentimes the invitations to change are on the loved ones, not even the person they're worried about. They don't have to change the love that they have, but they have to change how they're acting around that person to help move the situation forward. Yes, so well said. Thank you for saying it. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. 
Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So I have a great question for you related to all this. So I've watched this these TV shows about interventions and I've, you know, seen some of the articles about how you have to get in someone's face and you have to really confront and you have to you know, help the family members, let this person know that they're going to leave or disconnect if that person doesn't. And there's a huge amount of, so it's like a pressure cooker and the person has to stay in the room and everyone's got their little letter to read. And, you know, that's what I learned about intervention and what I see in the popular press. That's the public's perception of an intervention. What is the reality of of the work as you see it? So the reality of the work is it's merely an invitation to change and how we go about delivering that invitation can be so multi-different and and different faceted. And I don't have people use letters because I think they need to speak for their heart. And I interview everybody individually, so I get a portrait of them and a portrait of the loved one. And while and we definitely invite someone to come to a family meeting, and I always tell families to say, hey, look, we've got a family problem. Things just aren't going well. We need to find a solution. And I started working with Dr. Louise and her team. And we're going to find a solution. And I certainly hope that you're going to be be on, on board with us. You know, you do take a look. I would be misnomer to say, you know, what are some of the things you're doing that in unwillingly may be aiding and abetting or in collusion with your loved ones using? So, for example, if you have a 35-year-old living at home and they're allowed to bring um, 60-year-old boyfriends in that have alcohol, and they've been hospitalized three times for pancreatitis, you might consider that it's not a really good idea to allow your 35-year-old who, if we take a look at it, had a history of sexual assault, bring home a 60-year-old guy with alcohol into the bedroom, the doctors just told you that she might die, Okay. So it's really trying to figure out what the way in is and how you can join up. And I always work with another team member because I don't assume that the loved one's going to really love me. (laughs) This is often true. Yeah. I mean, but we'll try and figure out what it is that there is really important to them and what's really important to the family and what are they willing to do to create their own health and wellness. So this is not a power struggle that you have. It's much more relational. And the word invitation is you're laying out the problem for them and you're saying, gee, you know, how do you think we can solve this? And one of the things I'm thinking is you help avoid the shame of the person who is acting out. You know, when I heard you, what you said, and, you know, you didn't say, why are you screwing up this family or don't you love these people? Or, you know, if you took a look at yourself, you'd be, you said, things aren't working. And I wonder if we can all work together to fix them. And that's such a radically different way of approaching an intervention than what we see on TV. How effective is it? Because I know that a lot of spouses say, well, I just, someone needs to yell at him or, or a parent, just someone needs to get in their face and let them know. And there's a lot of that coming from often loved ones. How effective is it to not do that and to be more kind and gentle and relational, if you will? I mean, I have about a 96% success rate. And I also, sometimes someone will call me to intervene 
on their loved one and I end up sending the person who called me to treatment first. So <laughs> I have been known to do that. But I'm really, really excited because the University of Wisconsin heard me speak and later this year, sometime later this year, based on the other my textbook, which is was which was an invited textbook to write. Can you to say the name of it for the students that are listening? Yeah, it's called The Definitive Guide to Addiction Intervention Collective Strategies. It's available on Amazon. I'm going to be filming a 12-week course at a university. So I'm so excited. It's so needed because the, you know, the intervention field, I don't, there is no real certification, is there? Or I've heard some people, well, I'm in recovery for three months, so now I'm going to go do interventions. State of Pennsylvania has something called the Certified CIP, Certified Intervention Professional, and it does have requirements and it does require you to take um, some courses. The only difference is the way in, it could be you or I who are licensed clinicians and being a licensed clinician trumps any certification, or it could be someone else. And there's no, there's some really good people that teach these courses. And then there's some really people that aren't good that teach those courses. And yet the public does won't know the difference. And there are two different groups, so to speak, that are national groups, and they each have different rules about what you can do and what you can't do. But again, social work, psychology, HAMP, all those would sort of trump it, but there is an attempt there to do it. There has been absolutely positively no, no, unequivocally no really research done outside of Miller and Wilnick or people that have done short-term motivational interviewing inside of emergency rooms on the efficacy of intervention. Um, because how do you really have an end when everybody is doing something different? And that's a field that I think you have led the way in trying to, you know, it just seems so easy to walk in and say, I can fix all this. And what I love about your work is you have a lot of humility. You're not saying that you can fix anything. You're just really inviting everyone to have an opportunity to grow. And I think that makes people feel safe or more safe around you than they would otherwise. Thank you. I hope so. I mean, I love what I do. I'm really passionate about I, what I do. And I love at this stage, um, a legacy. And I just finished, I don't know what the title is going to be because I think the publisher chooses the title, but I just finished or turned in the draft. Hopefully it'll come out in November. And it, it does deal with family and it's going to be a short book, six chapters. And I think it's what I wish I would have known about substance use disorders, you know, about addiction, about what treatment was, about what I might say to a loved one, about what, how I might take care of myself. And so this book is designed sort of as a guidepost with different um, vignettes in it, but um, really like, what should I say? What should I do? And how do I like maneuver? And how do I enter into my own recovery? Because I think as a family member, it's really important that you begin to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, consistent with your values or spiritually, because I think that is the keystone for a way a loved one can change. But I don't hear you saying that the person who has the, the identified person who has the problem, the addict, the alcoholic, that we can't just fix them and then everything's going to be fine. I mean, as much as we would like to, is that, is that true? No, that's absolutely, totally, yeah, that's incorrect. 
Why not? I mean, well, I mean, if they were getting along and everything was fine before, and then the alcohol problem is resolved to some degree, why can't everyone just go back to being the way they were? Because unconsciously, everybody has unconsciously, everybody has identified and labeled, and I call it, I use Brad Lamb's term, identified loved one, that the identified loved one is a problem. And the moment that identified loved one or ILO stops becoming the problem, it, it shakes up the homostasis of the family. And all of a sudden, I got to take a look at me and I've got to change how I perceive the world and how I change it. And so one affects the other. And that's why I believe I, with all my heart that family work is just so family and friend work or family and partner work is just so important because nothing changes till something changes. And if you're sending your loved one away to be fixed and then you expect them to come back, which is what I often worry about with adolescents, without any parallel process, I think that person's doomed. Okay, so wait, I got to ask you another question then, and I'm so sorry because this is something that people ask all the time. If you're looking through a lens of, let's say, prodependence, where you believe that the partners and families are there not because they want to play out their pathologies, but because they're there for love. Once the problem goes away, you're saying they just don't go back to that loving, caring space? Is it they, they feel mistrustful or they're worried they are getting burned again? Or what? What? what is that? Why can't they just go back to the way it was? Well, because I don't think they necessarily were. I think they were walking on eggshells before. And I think that there's emotions, fear, trust, manipulation, blame, anger, sadness, that you know, you're worried. Um, someone's new in recovery. What are they going to be like? How are they going to do? Am I going to be worried that they're out all night long? What was my role to do? So once that person presents himself, and we know that recovery is uneven for everybody, there's ups and downs, um, then we have to make sure that families learn how to take care of themselves, that they're not hovering over. If your job when you first come out is to go to 90 meetings, say in 90 days, whatever your persuasion is, if your job is to really immerse yourself in an outpatient program or talk with a sponsor or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter then you're not going to be the same person. And if I'm expecting you to be the same person. Or if I'm staying up because you decided to go out late and have coffee with somebody, um, and I'm going to be worried because I don't trust you. Right. So last question, and I promise, other than asking you how do people can reach you, is I work with so many spouses in particular who say, look, I'm not the problem. I have nothing to do with the problem. I just got brought along for this horrible ride. And if he or she will just fix themselves, then everything will be fine. And in a very short way, what would you say to that spouse who's saying that kind of thing? Well, first, I probably would just affirm them because you have to start with the client is. Mm -hmm. So, and probably I segue into my famous filibuster, which is tell me about yourself. <laughs> Tell me why your heart is hurting. I hear you. It's got to be really terrible living mm -hmm. with, that, with that kind of life. So tell me about you. Tell me about your family. You're going to affiliate. You're going to build a relationship with. You're going to be that support that they haven't had for a long time. But I'm not going to start out with saying, you know, because I need to join up with them. You need to join up. In seven seconds, your readership decided whether they liked me or not. That's open space. That I do believe in. In seven seconds, a client takes a look at us and says, oh, my. Hmm. 
trust her. I think I can trust him. And if they don't, we're dead. We're dead. So Dr. Stanger, please tell me, how would people reach you if they are interested in intervention, if they're interested in reading one of your books, if they want to talk to you directly? How would they do that? Oh, it's really easy. All you do is you pick up the phone and you call 619-507-1699. I am my own answering service. I do a lot of writing and I have blogs that come out every week. Or there's sometimes we played on, on other media such as Thrive Global and DV Resources in London. But if you go to my website, which is www.allaboutinterventions.com, or you can just Google my name, Louise Stanger, and that's Stranger without an R, S-T-A-N-G-E-R, and just fill out a contact form. I would be most happy to hear from you and to learn about you and see ways in which we might collaborate or work together. So, Dr. Stang, I got to ask you this one last question. If someone is the identified challenge in the family, they're, they're drinking, they're using, they're the person who's really kind of upsetting the apple cart. I have found it really interesting. I will sit with that person, maybe in a group, and I'll say some, this often happens, and I'll say some things about their life and their family and what I'm observing. And then they'll say to me, you know, my wife has said that to me 50 times, but somehow hearing it from you, I can hear it for the first time. And I'm thinking that you must run into that too. Well, I think what they do is like we don't hear what we don't want to hear. And what I think you can do in a safe venue, especially in a group, because if you're with your with your partner, it's one-on-one or your wife is one-on-one. And, and for someone who experiences a substance use disorder or mental health, you're dead in the water with that. But it's the power of the group and able to carefully like open the honeycomb of denial in a way that's caring like you know, last week when I when you reported that you wrecked your car, I felt was really bad and confused. Uh-huh. And you didn't remember where it was. That's very different than someone come walking in the door and saying, Hey, you know, I told you you gotta stop drinking, you wrecked the car. Right, right, right. <laughs> no. I could do that too. I love I mean blame and shame is one of the favorite games I used to play. It's really a bummer not to be able to play it anymore, I have to say. <laughs> Dr. Sanger, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I know that you're going to be doing a whole bunch of webinars and lectures online. And folks, if you want to find out about Dr. Stanger, please just type into Google Dr. Louise Stanger and you'll find so much information. It is an honor to have you. And I look forward to doing this again. Oh, thank you. And keep seeking integrity. And it's a joy to be with you. One day at a time. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.